When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater, and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, this is... Now the second episode that I've recorded in the midst of, or uh, in, in, in the, the primary aftermath of a lot of the uh, peaceful process turned riots by police violence in the United States. Uh, and the man that I'm talking to today has been a salve uh, calling bullshit on a lot of our local Australian media's reaction to what seems so dunderheadedly fucking obvious internationally that racists are bad and people who aren't racist are better. Uh, this man is a producer of the great and informative 7am podcast that I would strongly recommend from the Saturday paper. He's a former member of the ABC. 
He occasionally presents on the mix. He has judged Walkley Awards and Literary Awards. Um, he gives some of the best Twitter in Australian news. And uh, he also uh, won a libel suit over Mark Latham, uh, which uh, is in and of itself a badge of honour. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, help me welcome Osman Faruqi to all the President's Minutes, mate. Thank you so much for doing the show. Mate, thank you so much for that introduction. Like you, you are the hype man I've been looking for my entire life. That, that was fantastic. If you can just like, you know, cut me that bit of this podcast and send it to me and I can, you know, make it, make it my audio business card, that'd be fantastic. I'm sending you a headliner as we speak. Uh, my friend, Sean, <laughs> my friend, Sean in Boston uh, says, I want you, when you come to Boston, I just want you to introduce me to girls from now on. So I'll, I'll take that as a compliment, but look, thank you so much for yeah, doing well, this. I was just going to say when the pubs are back open. Yeah, <laughs> when they're open. Wingman for me. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you're a voice that I've wanted to get on the show for some time. And, uh, you know, for, for folks who are listening, they'd be hearing that we're increasing the frequency of the show because I just think that right now, uh, uh, this text, particularly this masterpiece from 1976, um, is intersecting with cinema and politics and journalism and, you know, and, and history in such a way that I think deserves scrutiny. And, and right now, more than ever, especially, you know, in these peaceful protests turned riots, uh, journalists are literally brazenly being shot with chalk pepper bullets, being arrested, being charged and beaten by, you know, police violence, Donald Trump's authoritarian photo ops that turn into, you know, crowd dispersing activities with tanks rolling down streets. It's just, it is an insane time to, to try and grapple with it. And, its sister decade, if you like, is, you know, this late sixties, early seventies, new Hollywood period. And, and this movie is kind of like at the, at the very top of that pile of quality and, and resonance all the way from back then. Oh yeah, totally. I think, I think what's really interesting about, you know, I, I rewatched this movie um, the other week and that, that era you're talking about the late sixties, the early seventies where Hollywood was producing, you know, what were more radical, films that were really interrogating the kind of society that America was living in. And, you know, it was around the time we just, just before we started to get the really intense anti-war Vietnam movies as well, that are quite different to the sort of films that America was making in the fifties in this post-World War II kind of jingoistic, how great is America era. And it reminds me a lot of the last sort of decade of Hollywood, you know, post-financial crisis. Like you think about, you know, when I came of age watching movies in the early to mid two thousands, it was, you know, it was peak America is the conquering superpower. Our war movies didn't interrogate much. Movies about journalism didn't really exist. Uh, right. If they did, they kind of made journalists out to be intrepid war heroes. And, you know, that all started started to, I think, come apart when both the, the financial crisis and just the decay of American imperialism exposed kind of the rotten core of the US. And movies started to really expose not just the institutions like the presidency, like the military, but in some instances, in some instances, institutions like the media itself. Yes. Um, and so I think there's a really, a really clear parallel between, like you said, the new Hollywood era that, that this movie came out of and the kind of politics that Robert Redford was holding and the films and discussions that we're uh, having now. Yeah. It's, 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 it feels like, uh at the time that I conceived of this project and I did it this year, it was already a crazy enough time to have the conversation about the parallels to the past and to our, you know, to our present, just with Trump's final year in office and the ramp up to what would ultimately be an election that's coming in this November. But 
you know, when you pair it with, you know, the, one of the greatest natural disaster crises ever in Australia mm. with the, with the Australian bushfires, then COVID and now people risking their lives still at the, at the long tail of the COVID-19 crisis in America, where we are a little bit more fortunate in the Southern hemisphere, particularly in Oz, you know, of, of those relatively doing everything we can to basically squash it. Mm. People are compelled <laughs> to get out, to get out into the streets and compelled to, to, to be out in, in protest um, of, of police brutality. And then it, it happening now in every state of America in sometimes multiple cities in each of those states. And now internationally, uh, you know, there's this resounding outpouring of anti-racist movement because it feels like it's been normalized for now the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, there's something about this moment that is particularly kind of like awe-inspiring. Like, I'm, I don't know how you feel when you watch the footage oh. or see clips on social media. It's, it's kind of a combination for me of sort of intense sadness of, of what, you know, marginalised communities in America have to deal with. But, but simultaneously, it's this incredibly inspiring moment. Like, like, like you said, some of the communities that are at the, most, at the, the highest risk of this virus, the highest risk of stepping outside at this moment of intense, you know, militarization of police and Trump basically threatening to unleash, not even basically threatening to unleash the military, still feel like they have a responsibility or, or a need to, to step up and speak out on this. And it is leading to results, you know, like today, the day that we're recording this podcast, I woke up to the news that um, in, in Minnesota, the charges against the police um, had been upgraded, the police who were accused of killing um, George Floyd. And that didn't happen accidentally. That happened as a result of those protests and kind of, again, just exposes how political the entire, you know, justice system in America is like it is everywhere, even though we like to pretend that some institutions are supposed to be beyond politics, but they're clearly not. And it's not drawing, you know, it's drawing too much of a bow to say that like all the president's men is about, you know, the, the, the way that um, racial minorities are abused. It's obviously not a movie about that. But <laughs> no, no. The no. Things, but the things that it explores, which are the murkiness of political decision-making and the way that politics represents the core kind of social and economic structures at the heart of America, you know, there's, there's a lot you can read into that. And, and it becomes more depressing when you, you know, when the movie ends, and sorry if I'm jumping too far ahead, feel free to like, you know, jump you're, in at any point. You're, 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 you're allowed. Uh, I think everyone who's listened to this show realizes that the minute concept is um, a guideline <laughs> more than a rule. <laughs> we, we occasionally cheat and talk about other parts of the movie. So you're, you're welcome to talk about the end of the film. But I just think that like one, one flaw with this movie and movies like this is that journalists tell the story, something good happens as a result and the problem is solved, right? And obviously it's not the job of this movie to like interrogate every single thing that happens in America. But I think there's certainly a tendency or, you know, it's almost like a sense of optimism. It's like, we wrote this story, the president's resigned, like we've done and dusted this. But I mean, you can just see from the recent history in America that as important as reporting Watergate was, it didn't fundamentally change the nature of American politics, the presidency, or the way the country works. And what we've seen from Trump in the past few years is just a reminder of that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I think when I look at the end of this film, and, it, and we'll, we'll, I promise to bring it back around to the minute that we're talking about is, <laughs> and at the end of the film has these these reporters sort of tirelessly continuing to work and holding to account, but that, that air of things being able to be done 
that satisfaction because the, the whole movie ultimately ends with, you know, largely dissatisfaction. You don't see Nixon ousted, you don't see it, but you see that you, you know that their results are coming. But I think what resonates with me more besides the positivity is just the work. Like the work has to continue mm, to be mm. done. And mm. there's something about in the conversation, it's actually in the scene, we're right at the beginning of the scene, but it sort of mm. happens in the, mm. in the latter parts of the scene is just about how the media in this, in their role is to drum up the importance of something when it's attempted to like be ignored and be squashed by political fuckery. Like, so for example, where's, you know, if, if this George Floyd thing, they're just like, Oh, it was a bad apple. We've even seen it in a viral post from a Sydney police officer who, who assaulted a young, um, a, a young person of color uh, on the streets. And then it was like, Oh, it's just a, you know, just a bad, you know, just an accident. Oh, he's just having a bad day or whatever the case may be. It's like, that that then is the role for the media in this case or, or, or our idealized version of the media to scrutinize the living daylights out of and go, no, that's not just a bad thing that happened. This person has had many cases of assault and we need to, do, we need to take action and then helping and supporting those causes and drumming up the attention that it deserves to get people to move, to get people to get up. And in the case of George Floyd, the media didn't need to kick in. It was overwhelming social media and people themselves and just pure mm. outrage mm. because it was the virality of it that made people say, no, we're going to stand up. This is unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it kind of shows that those protests, those campaigns were aimed you know, at, at, at institutions like the media as well as they were aimed at politicians and police to put pressure on them to report this stuff better. And I think like, you know, we'll get to the minute because I actually think the minute that we're talking about has a lot of stuff that touches on these things to talk through like the good and the bad of what the media can do. But I think like the final sort of summary of, of this movie in general for me is that it shows in a really like at some moments, mind numbingly boring detail, what, <laughs> ju- what good journalism can look like. It, it's not always glamorous. It's sometimes boring and unfulfilling, but when you know what side you're on, when you know, that it's your job to expose powerful people and to act in the interests of justice and you are dogged in that pursuit, you can have profound impacts. And I think that is a really important reminder for a lot of journalists. And you know, we talked about that New York Times op-ed just briefly at the start. I think too many journalists, and you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you will have heard me say this a million times, think that their job is to not have any skin in the game, to not have any perspective at all, and simply to say, well, sure, there's this group of people who want to do this bad thing, but there's this other group of people who think that thing is bad. Um, All the President's Men is not a story that is about seeking to both sides corruption in the White House. It it, it is a story (laughs) about saying corruption is bad and it should be exposed. And that is a complete, that should be a normal principle in journalism, right? Not an abstract one. Yeah, the, the, the moral compass of this movie is is great because it's like corruption bad. We don't need to discuss it, whether it's sorry. Someone can't give me an op-ed that corruption's fine or it's a step. Like that's not the place for it. Corrupt bad. These are things exactly, that we should hold exactly. true. Self-evident. And and it, and it shouldn't seem like a radical concept, but I think <laughs> with so much of with so much of the media losing sight of that, like it is quite an important text for that reason. Just to make that really clear. All right. Well, let's dive into the minute. Folks, we're going to listen along to the minute and watch it together. You guys are going to listen along as well. And then Oswald and I are going to come back and talk about it. Yes. Fantastic. I'm coming home. Okay. 
but it seemed to pay off in a bolstering of support for the Democratic ticket. Scott, what happened with that Taiwan thing you were telling us about? Uh, Japan is going to break diplomatic ties with Taiwan and yeah. recognize that China. The irony, of course, that's a direct result of Nixon's visit to China. Jesus, what did he tell you? What did he say to him? Incidentally, yeah. that's a great uh, parallel story if you're going to do that piece on detente. Hmm. All right, Queen Elizabeth proclaims a state of emergency to deal with the one we call dock strike. Breaking it off with both. Can I give you a human interest? 31 days of rain in the Philippines is being blamed on the theft of a statue of Jesus. We had one like that before. Right. Play Jai, play that's absolutely insane. I'll put my best rider on there. What about the one in India? Six months ago. Same pictures with Boris. Laugh, gentlemen, it'll be the only story everyone reads. Okay, now. Laugh, laugh, gentlemen. It'll be the only story that anyone reads. A human interest story about floods. There it is, my friend. I love this scene. I'm actually really glad that this is the scene <laughs> that we are getting to talk about because it, 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 I love it from both a cinema perspective and as a, as a working journalist perspective. Like, you know, the, the bulk of it is this, you know, senior news editorial meeting where they're talking about what's going to be in the paper um, and, you know, what kind of stories resonate, what kind of stories don't resonate. But it also acts as like a bit of exposition that just grounds you in like what is actually happening in America right now. Um, yes. and, and what's happening around the world. So, and it's like, it's so funny to watch because it's just a group of not even middle age, just like old white guys laughing it up. And, <laughs> and it's like, and I don't even think it's like a commentary on that. I don't think, you know, Redford or, or the writers are, are kind of like doing this scene to be like, this is pointed in terms of like the lack of representation and diversity in the media. It's like, that's just literally what it was like. And they're like, wouldn't have even thought twice about doing something different. Um, but, you know, perhaps what's more depressing is 40 years later, like that's still what most newsrooms look like. That's exactly what I was just going to say to you when I watched this scene. Some scenes I pick people just arbitrarily and I, and I had a gap and I thought, oh, I really want to talk to yourself. And when I put you along this one, just tentatively, I went back and looked at the precise minute again in preparation. I was like, oh no, this is perfect. This is exactly what we've been talking about online and, and sharing about online and what people have been seeing is like, that if this is how the sausage of media is made and it's still a bunch of white mm. guys around a table 40 mm. years earlier, it's mm. actually more, it's, it, you know, it's, it's totally acceptable that in 1976, this is what a newsroom looks like, but it's not totally acceptable. And, and, and in, in Australia, this is the context. There's a lot of newsrooms that look just like this in this country um, or the dwindling newsrooms that there are often look like this in the, from and a I think you could, I think you could have like, I think the other thing, that, like the thing about this movie and, that, and that, I guess that scene so obviously the Washington Post back then it was huge it's still an enormous newspaper but you know had hundreds and hundreds of journalists I think the the set that they used which recreated the actual offices of the Washington Post was 30,000 square feet or something like absolutely enormous to replicate that newsroom environment and each one of these editors who's in this meeting is representing a different division you know it's like metro we cover what's happening on the streets in dc i'm international like i'm politics i'm culture um whatever and like they are speaking on behalf of dozens if not scores of journalists and what that gives you, even if each of these men are essentially, you know, you, you could kind of swap them out for one another in terms of how they look and sound. They still are representing a real bulk of people and that tension that comes from that, arguing about which story should be on which page and which story should be above the fold or below the fold on the front page, which is really what sets, you know, the news agenda and the country's agenda. That tension 
only exist because of the sheer number of journalists that existed in newsrooms. So now we kind of have, I think, this kind of depressing worst case scenario, at least in a lot of newsrooms in Australia, where newsrooms have shrunk. Journalists, there's far fewer journalists, there's far fewer senior editors, so there's less tension, and everyone is still so culturally homogenous. So whatever like tension did used to exist, even if people came from the same cultural or gendered backgrounds, that that has now been lost as well. Um, And I think, you know, I I can't speak for American newsrooms, but, you know, just thinking about what we were talking about today in terms of the New York Times op-ed again, and one of the most interesting things there is seeing so many New York Times journalists in America and, and out of the Bureau in Australia posting their dismay at this opinion article by a Republican senator that said that the troops should be sent in to shut down these protests. Now, that, that's an, another example of how robust American news culture is, where journalists feel comfortable critiquing their bosses and critiquing their colleagues online. Um, and with in, mass, in this film and with massive followings, sorry. too. Like, as we were watching today, as I'm sure you saw, it was like the entire, you know, I saw because I follow all these folk, you know, Manola Dargis, who's a friend of this show. Mm, like mm, I saw Manola mm. do it. And then it just like the entire culture section and then the entire like international reporting section. And you're like, Oh, this is, these are all times reporters and they all have massive followings in their own right. And they're all showing their dismay. And it's not just the black journalists. It's actually every, every journalist that's there going, this is a, an irresponsible thing to post right this very moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, like there's no, there's no direct parallel in this movie or in this scene, but, but there is, you know, and, and the, the movie does such a good job of, of, I think, outlining that this movie could have very easily just said the Washington Post, everyone's a hero. We all decided from day one, this is the most important story. And we all just went out and did it and patted each other on the back. It was fantastic. That's obviously not what happened. Like this newsroom had debates and there was pressure and there's, you know, discussion, even in this one particular scene of like, what are the stories that should run and why what ended up being the biggest print news story, probably in the history of the American press, you know, at different stages was being deprioritized by editors. And that culture of robustness is what ultimately led to this kind of journalism being prioritized by places like the Washington Post. And the same discussions we're seeing now in the Times, like even if it doesn't lead to the opinion editor doing a mere culpa and apologizing, it will have a cultural shift, whether that's at the Times or whether that's elsewhere, as editors and audiences and newspaper owners understand that the culture is shifting and what's being expected by readers and by journalists isn't the same as it was, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think I think it's the shift is positive though, because it's like it feels like the the Trump era the the one thing about the Trump era and you hear some people call it like post facts, you know, post fact mm. era and things like that is people have been talking themselves around in circles to validate and justify biases that should like, mm. uh, uh, that, you know, you and I, and hopefully everyone who's listening to the show can agree. These aren't, these aren't, this isn't a dialogue about a political difference. There's moral differences. Like when there's a Nazi rally, don't come out and say there were bad people on both sides. Like that just seems self-evident. It's like, there were Nazis. We need to, we need to renounce their activities. Neo-Nazis, you know, should be outlawed, you know, put a stamp on it. Police brutality against black people is bad. Police brutality in general is bad. Like there are just some things that feel 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like it's self-evident, and right now that that's the hemorrhage that we're seeing online, and the hemorrhage we're seeing in, in media is, you know, there is still this. I don't know. It's maybe it's like a latency effect. Like it's like people haven't quite gotten. Mm. No, we're done. Like that. Mm. Trying mm. to trying to opinion that this is a good idea for militaristic authoritarian violence or advocate for people who have racist views. It's like no, racism is bad. Your views are wrong. Like there, there's some things about. I don't agree with our approach in the military or protest, all these sorts of things. But when it comes down to like, I agree that all black people shouldn't exist. It's like, no, that's, that's racist that you're wrong. This, this mm. shouldn't be the mm. argument anymore. So it's really interesting, you know, and, and folks hopefully who are listening, will see that we're sort of keeping these episodes coming out almost, you know, at real time as we're recording them. But that's what I'm finding is a, a really interesting and, 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 and fascinating, uh, turn of events that now people are even from within their own publications going, that's a really dumb idea. That's, that's like, that hasn't happened in this whole presidency yet, but 2020, lots of unexpected things are happening every single day. It feels like. No, totally. And I think like, you know, to, to, to think about this scene from another perspective, uh, this minute from another perspective and, you know, that so far I've been very misty eyed of this like golden era of journalism, but let's, let's not, ignore some of the good stuff that has happened and this scene kind of shows some of the problems right so back then when you're deciding like you know newspapers filled you know the dozens of pages with all sorts of stuff but very few people would read cover to cover and and that's why these debates where the news editors would sit around and say here's a story i've got it should be not only on the front page but it should be above the fold so when people are walking past the newsstands or picking it up from their from their um, porches that's the story that sets the agenda the only input for the decision for what stories would run, who would get a prominent byline, what images would be used, what headlines would be used. The only input for that was this group of news editors, which as we've already discussed, were elderly white guys who, you know, some, the the editor, um, Ben Ben Bradley, who was like best friends with JFK, like so many of them are deeply connected to the political establishment themselves, right? Yes. So that's how news used to be made. And one of the one of the interesting things about this current era of like digital journalism, and it's by no means perfect, but there's more inputs and more metrics into the decision-making of what gets a run and who gets a run and the prominence of stories than just news editorial meetings. And that's essentially because with the internet, you know which stories get clicked and shared and read and which ones don't. Now that obviously has its own set of like perverse imperatives, right? Because stories that might be super important um, but are about a topic that people might not click on. And another topical example of that is indigenous incarceration. For most of my time in the news media, it's been accepted as this thing where like editors will say, that's not a story that people will click on. I don't think that that's important what to do. And then you get the opposite of that, which is stories that are maybe not that important, but very clicky, getting, getting prominent attention. Yes. But where it has been, I think, a force for good, and it's sort of like democratized the news process to an extent. Whether there are stories that this group of men in a newsroom at the Washington Post in the 70s might not think are important, right? Things to do with 
you know, women's rights in the 70s or things to do with the black civil rights movement. None of those voices are being represented. But now if a story gets put on a website, even if it's not put in a prominent position, it can travel far via social media, via word of mouth. It can become one of the most read stories. And that sends a signal to news editors that that's a topic that needs to be focused on. And so, yes. you you know, and again, I, I'm trying to make the point that I'm not trying to say that this is a perfect way to do news journalism, but it, it has allowed for more regular people to have an input into how the news is made than we saw in this previous era. And, you know, I think that ultimately there should be a balance, like news editors need to use their own judgment and their own perspectives to decide what's important. And they need to consult with a wide range of people to do that. But I think it's also kind of a good thing that audiences by virtue of like what they click on, what they read, what they share now have a voice in those newsrooms as well. Hope that made sense. It wasn't just too much. No, 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 no. I think this, this is important though. It's, I think it's like in that newsroom though, to, to your point, Oz, it's like, there's no one in that room that's going to convince that group otherwise. And I've been fantasizing about something. If I, if you want to get titillated, if you want just five seconds of, um, it could be either fun or just hellscape to imagine. It's to imagine Richard Nixon with Twitter. With Twitter, um, and I've been thinking about what would what would Nixon be like with Twitter? Just like I've done it in this show, I've said it a few times, and I chuckle about it to myself. But it's the same thing. What would the Post do if there was a like if Twitter was there? Like what would what what would knee jerk reaction jittery Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, have done with? social media at his hand like if if he had a lead and he didn't maybe have the sources would he have reactionarily gone to to twitter you know as sometimes journalists do now so it's one of those funny things of like layering in but like right now this is what people well, who in this hear. film would have been cancelled you know oh, in the era of social media probably like most people <laughs> everyone in this movie's cancelled everyone's cancelled but uh, but i just yeah i admire that it's right now that's that's a good tension to have it's like especially when you do have an existing cohort and you know, sometimes cultures need to shift and change with different publications as time's passing. And that's a good tension to create of like one editor might say, we're not going to run it. And then other editors who are emerging in that room based on social media, based on what people are interested in going, if we don't run this, we're being negligent to our readers because people want to know about it. Like, and if we're not doing that, then we're not doing it justice to, you know, to, to people who are consuming what we're doing. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fa- it's a fascinating little thing to think about with these guys, but you're so right as well. It's like, um, and the post gets to play retcon with Ben Bradley as well, discussing like, Hey, relationships with politicians, not so good because I, as much as you might utilize those relationships to get in for stories when things are happy and the status quo is okay. When you have to start writing stories about how, you know, political malfeasance come in and doors start getting shut in your face, you have to accept that, that's just part of who you are. That's part of the job that you're going to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like that, that kind of opens up and it's a bit outside this minute, but one of the, I mean, it's not actually because the first, the first little bit that is in this minute is, um, is, is Redford's Woodward on the phone. Right. And like, yes. that is a thing that I, I both loved and loathed about this movie. <laughs> I loved, I loved that these, these guys were so, do- and it's like why I like spotlight so much as well. It, it, it like, Obviously, Robert Redford is a extremely handsome, glamorous Hollywood actor. But in this movie, he doesn't play. Like, you know, he's not really played as like a sex icon. He's played as a pretty junior reporter who no one really trusts and is sort of fumbling around and he makes mistakes. But 
He just does the hard yards. He does lots of door knocks on houses that lead nowhere. He makes phone call after phone call after phone call, including that incredible scene, which he, you know, was calling two people at once, um, which is apparently all filmed in one take. Um, and they just kept his laughing when he got the name wrong, which wasn't part of the script. And, and, I, and I, the reason why I love it is because that is how so much of journalism is actually done. Um, but what I loathe about it is I'm just jealous of this era <laughs> where there was no way for politicians or anyone, you know, that you might be reporting on. It was very hard to brush you off. You know, nowadays you call someone and, and as soon as it's clear that you're a journalist from an outlet who's doing a story that might not reflect well on that person, they can just say, hey, sorry, I'll just send you an email, right? Or I'll like, you know, I'll get back to you or whatever. And I don't know whether it's just trust in the media was different or the media and politicians worked differently back then or the fact that you, you know, phone calls were the only way to get communication. But every time they get a call, they, they connect with who they need they basically get something of what they want, you know, whether it's what they famously describe as the non-denial denial, where they I don't deny that. anything. It's, it's <laughs> the, the, the common version now is like, you know, no comment or like off the record, no comment or deeply off the record, whatever. There's just so many strategies now that politicians and their managers can use to obfuscate and, and brush people off. But back then, you know, if you knocked on someone's door, they were there and they just spoke to you. If you got through to that person, they spoke to you presumably because they thought just hanging up would reflect worse on them. But you know, and there's some bits where I'm sure they've, you know, taken, taken it a bit far for the sake of, of me, you know, where he calls the, the white house and he's trying to get in contact with someone and like, Oh, I'll put you right through to that. Like, I'm not sure if that actually would have happened that way. Um, but for a movie that. Well, it probably never, huge... it probably never happened that way again. after this. After, yeah. 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 And, it probably, this and, I, and I wonder how much of journalism, has been ruined because of what these guys did. And everyone got trained after that. It's like, we can't ever let this happen again. <laughs> Anytime a journalist calls from the Washington Post or the Times or wherever, like, you know, we have media managers now where they didn't used to have them to that extent in well, politics back then. And that's what's extraordinary about it. For folks who want to go back, um, Jess Hill is an Australian investigative journalist who um, uh, was on the show on episode 47, talked about seeing uh, Bob Woodward, the real Bob Woodward at a media conference during her career. And he was talking to, you know, journalists. And when he was speaking to them at the time, it's the first time in the show where we're nearly 50 minutes in, we're in the 55th minute of all the president's minutes talking to Osman today. We're here. And she said that he was like, you know, if, if I, all you journalists out there, if I need a story, you just go to people's houses and you knock on the door. And Jess having an experience at the time, you know, with, with uh, international correspondents, particularly uh, journalists that were working in foreign countries that were war-torn. She's like, hey, how would your uh, political uh, uh, people in uh, power would like you knocking on their door and coming for a story? Would you be greeted yeah. with an AK-47? Um, and, I think that, <laughs> and, and I think that that's one of those interesting things, right? Which is like back then, if there was some kind of polite, cordiality between the media it's like if it hasn't been this is the most demonized time for media and 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 i even hear like you know people who i admire or people on podcasts like just you know chatting about it and they're like oh the media and it's like well is it all the media is it just this umbrella of the media or is it just the outlets that you're viewing that spin it in a certain way like it's it's a really interesting quandary uh, that this movie brings up which is why i enjoy talking about it so much Totally. And, 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 you know, I talked to a lot of journalists about this movie and we have very similar discussions and, you know, you know, I think it's important for journalists. This is the tension I have with, you know, I, I saw, as I said at the start, 
I love this movie because it doesn't glamorize reporting, beat reporting, and it's a pretty honest and thorough look at it of, of the knocking on doors and that sort of thing. But I still think that there's a risk. There's a risk in journalists worshipping other journalists and thinking that, you know, the kind of report, like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein are this, they're an exception, right? Like they're, they're a household name in a way most journalists aren't because they did this story. But it's not like they went on to do that many other, you know, extremely, it's kind of famous that they, they didn't really have many scoops before this. They didn't really have that many scoops after this. Uh, even yes. though, you know, Woodward's continued to write about federal politics um, in, in the US, um, including, you know, the, the book on Trump recently. But I think, you know, I have these two categories of friends of mine who are journalists when they interact with this movie. Some of them, I think it's closer to me, which is like, it's a really good movie that that focuses on um, just how hard reporting is. And then there are some, it's kind of like what I call West Wing syndrome for people I know who work in yes. politics, right? Yes. So all think that they are going to be Josh Lyman <laughs> um, when one, Josh Lyman is like not real. That's not how politics works. And two, no one should aspire to be like a, you know, a, a, a political staffer with like, you know, mediocre morals and principles. That's not a thing that anyone should aspire to. And it's something I think Sorkin should never be forgiven for is turning, you know, making people want to idolize that. And I think similarly with journalists, um, you know, you can respect what these guys did, but I think there's a problem when journalists try to become something bigger than they should be like journalists shouldn't really be celebrities there shouldn't be people whose name um is what gets them in the door they shouldn't become people that become too connected to power and obviously this movie doesn't talk about that enough but someone like bradley's character the editor who has been connected to democrat party politics through his relationship with the kennedys for so long like it's kind of fascinating that the washington post is this bastion of like freedom and transparency and democracy but also is so linked to the political core. It's like, well, what would happen if it wasn't Nixon in the White House? What happens if it was one of the Kennedys in the White House and one of the reporters came up to them with a story? Like, would he have been as gung-ho or as, like, encouraging of them in pursuing that story? That's, that's an interesting what if, I think. Yeah, there's definitely those. And, and I think it's, it's so funny. I spoke to the great film critic, Kenny Turin, who's now retired from the LA Times, the only film critic ever to be uh, demanded to be impeached um, from his position as a film critic from the wow. LA times wow. by, by James Cameron for a pan review of Titanic. And he's so wise. He just said, you know, one of the things, and he, and he actually worked for the Washington post during the Watergate era. And he said one right, thing right. that this movie helped him do. And I think it's so pertinent to our conversation. It's like it dispelled any part of my psyche that thought that movies weren't romantic mm. because mm. He'd been a journalist, just like we talked about in the grind, you know, that fastidious, like, this is a grind. I'm on the phone. I'm calling, 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 calling. I've got the pieces that I need. I've got enough of the facts. I've got enough sources. I have something to go with. And he's like, at the time, I remember sitting in my chair, looking at that and going, God, that looks romantic. And then also being able to disassociate and going, but wait, I've done that. And it sucks. (laughs) It's not, it doesn't look as good as Robert Redford looks doing it. And so yeah, there's, yeah, that, totally. there's that whole thing of like, it's, it's that great thing where yes, it, there's something inherently romantic about everything that's happening, but it's like the grind is there, but you can't, I find myself, you can't dissociate you, know, it, you me, doesn't matter if, you know, we're ethnic backgrounds, whatever, 
I'm, I'm a dark featured Maltese guy with a beard. Who do I want to play me in a movie? 76 Robert <laughs> Redford, right? Like that's who I want. Like <laughs> totally, that's, that's totally. who, that's who you want to play you. Cause you just want to be gorgeous. You want, you want people to be enraptured with your, the stillness of your face thinking, you know, like it's, it's, it's so hard not to do, but I, I think that that's the good, you know, what this movie does in its romance is keep you engaged. But I agree with you. It's it. I think the pondering of it afterwards and this whole pursuit has helped me just keep questioning, you know, there's really lots of fun motifs that happen around this and, 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 and we are never short of, you know, fun what ifs about what would this what would this journalism team do now with this story what would they do with this story how would they report this story and you can sort of have a direct corollary with like what how the post is doing things now versus then it's it's really fascinating absolutely and i know i actually hope that we do see more movies like even you know the like i mentioned spotlight before which i think is the other great film about journalism i put yeah, these two in in sort of in sort of that category and you know not a coincidence that it's also about um, you know, a, a group of journalists before the kind of advent of, of digital, you know, kind of journalism. Um, and, but I would love to see a movie in this current era. Like, it's not as though there haven't been incredible scoops. We think about things like the the WikiLeaks sort of um, scandals, you know, and there's been movies about that that focus on the WikiLeaks sides of things. But I think we're really ready for for a story, a film that interrogates how journalism is done you know, in this current era. And I think if it's not, you know, the less kind of, like, I think there's this, you know, you think about movies like The Post, right? Which again, are sort of set mm. not recently, but because of what America is going through and, and the attack on press freedom there, but, you know, all around the, the world, there's this desire to glorify journalism, right? It's like journalism is so important. It's done these incredible things. They have to defend it to the death. And I think that's an important principle and it's a important notion. I get that. But the best movies aren't clear cut like that. And you said this about this movie. It is moral ambiguity throughout it on, on the part of a lot of the plays, even even the ones we're rooting for. Um, you know, there's, there's rule breaking, there's getting facts wrong, there's all sorts of stuff. And I think yeah. that moral ambiguity is is perhaps even more obvious now in terms of the mistakes. Like, give me a movie that is literally just about how the New York Times is covering race in the era of Trump. Like, <laughs> like yes. you know, like, or give me a TV show that has one episode focused on that. I think that would be super fascinating to watch. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where there's so few, um, and this, again, makes this movie a complete outlier. So many, because at the time it's made, it's directing it, people's attention to how the news is made at that time. And, and it did, and, and it seems so prophetic now, but like, it's, you know, maybe it's just the, the team of people that produce it, but it's like, you want something that's got the immediacy of this movie to be made now. And like, I, I think I've, there's been a couple of news stories and I don't know if I've talked about it so much on the show, but like, um, Jodie Cantor and Megan, uh, Twoys, she said, and mm-hmm. Catching Kill by Rowan mm-hmm. and Farrow, they're talking about film rights to so those sorts of things, um, are yeah, out right are out there in the world. So that's, you know, hopefully if they, if they do get made into films, they can sort of engage with, you know, the, the, um, I think someone calls it termite art, the famous phrase termite art of like the, you know, just getting into the grind of all the details of how the stories are done and how modern journalism works. But, but yeah, I, I, I I don't know if it's like whether our appetite's not there for those sorts of immediate things, but one thing that is for sure is, you know, right now as we're recording this, I also have another podcast called Miami Nice with a great film critic called Katie Walsh talking about Michael Mann's film Miami Vice. And we've put that show on hiatus because right now 
we don't really want to talk about cops uh or especially <laughs> glamorized cops in a in a show uh and so you know maybe um journalists can emerge as a, as an alternative things that are scrutinizing police activities perhaps yeah and like you know i think that's that's a really that's a really fascinating idea like and, and all i mean the other thing that i think's become probably more more obvious over the last few years is how all of the things that we want to interrogate whether that's through journalism or through art and film politics the police um and, and journalism they're all they're all linked you know it, it's more obvious than ever than the link the, the Weinstein stuff is fascinating because Weinstein famously like you know would leak stories to journalists to make himself look good he worked closely with journalists he had lots of yes. journalist friends he had political friends and and that in that connection is something that I would like to see explored like I think the the um she said book I, I, you know I'm not trying to say I don't want to watch a movie about that I would devour any movie about the reporting on the Weinstein stuff but I think if you think about it in terms of like a a really basic narrative sense who would be the good guys who would be the bad guys Harvey Weinstein would be the bad guys the journalists would be the good guys that's that's a fine movie and it actually reflects what happened in that instance but I guess what I want is something that maybe has someone in the media being on the bad side yes. and it doesn't need to be the media is evil but it needs to reflect that like even at these moments when journalists are doing such an important job and exposing so much bad stuff there are still people working for these newspapers for these institutions that are on the wrong side well Oz look I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this show um, I, I've relished the convo about it uh, you know about this newsroom and about this minute and sometimes minutes are made for the different guests that come on the show and, and I just am exceptionally grateful that you could be part of it for this minute because I think it's it's an important and it's a it's a it's a conversation um, around this movie and using the prism of this movie to start really scrutinizing you know uh, particularly local media but international media and to start to see how the events of you know our, our current time are starting to shape or reshape things for the future so thank you so much for being a part of the show Oh, thanks so much for having me on it and curating this minute for me. I, I'm sure I went wildly off topic and said a lot of uh, <laughs> dumb things, but it was it was fantastic to have a reason to, to think so much about this movie. I, I loved it. Thanks. That was my incredible guest, Osman Faruqi. You can find Osman at at Oz, O-Z, underscore F on Twitter and that's probably the best place to lead you off and to everything that he's talking about. And and as I said, he's one of the most outspoken and rightly so outspoken voices on Australian Twitter when it's anything talking media and politics. He's an essential follower if you don't already, so please do. And uh, there's a lot of continuing activity and discourse that he's a part of, which I think is relevant to anyone who's listening to this show. So, Oz, thank you so much for being a part of it. Huge thanks um, for making the time. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard, of course, at One Blake Minute, at ATPM Pod on Twitter for both the show's podcast, uh, uh, Twitter, and my personal podcast. OneHeatMinute.com is the place that you can find us. That's the best uh, place to jump off to anything else that we're doing. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you can contribute, you can go to the description of this podcast where you can donate to our show as a one-off or on a regular basis. If you want to just share and, 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 and put people onto the show, that's more than enough. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you on another episode soon.